Yes, there are misconceptions are kind of uh, very popular today, aren't they? Misconceptions and misperceptions. In the age of social media and Google theology, all substantiated by Wikipedia and fact checkers, of course, it's easy to get a false narrative about something or even someone these days. And it seems that everyone has a presupposition or an agenda, and that comes through in how they perceive the world and then the events around them. This church is not exempt from this either. documentaries, the Hallmark Channel, and so on and so forth, many of which are non-Christian and just portrayed that way. But even solid Bible-believing Christians sometimes have misconceptions about the church and what it is and what it is not. And that's what I want to talk about with you this morning in part two of my departing instructions for you all. Now, we don't have time to address all of the misconceptions there are about the church. You series if we were going to talk about that. So I've just picked some of the ones that are the most pertinent for the church today, some of the more popular ones uh, that affect all the churches, including PBC. And I pray that God will work in our hearts this morning as we walk through this. We want to answer the question, what is the church? Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. Father, I'm so thankful for these dear saints who are gathered here today, and many at home as well, who are sitting there with their Bibles open and are ready to dive into the depth of your word. And uh, your word, Lord, is so deep that the greatest theologians of the world have never plumbed the depths of it, and yet it is so simple, the gospel message itself, that even a child. sacred. We hold it dear to our hearts. And this morning, as we open up your truth, we pray that we would have open eyes, open ears, and open hearts, and open minds to your truth. And as always, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. We want to take the truth of your word and then apply it to our lives in a way that brings you glory. That's our heart's desire every single time we gather together. So, Father, found your way into the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, and we want to begin, just to give us a little context here, beginning in verse 13. So let's look at that together. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And in verse 14, they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, some of those people did indeed believe that 
Jesus was really John the Baptist resurrected. Matter of fact, earlier in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, uh, Herod said this. At the, I mean, at the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and that's why all these miraculous powers are at work in him. So you have this idea about who Jesus is floating around. Still others thought that Jesus was a resurrected Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The Old Testament prophecy in Malachi had predicted that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And so in Matthew chapter 11, actually, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come and to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi. Now, that doesn't mean that John the Baptist was reincarnated Elijah or even a resurrected Elijah. What Jesus meant by that is that John the Baptist would come in the spirit of Elijah, being one of those who would proclaim and herald the coming of the Messiah. And, which is exactly, if you remember, exactly what the angel told Zechariah when he informed him that Elizabeth would carry this child, John the Baptist, and he would be a proclaimer of the good news. He would make way the path before the king. Well, Jesus knew there was a lot of confusion about who he was, and there was a lot of misguided, well-intended, but misguided conceptions misconceptions, I should say, about who he was. So he asked them directly in verse 15, he says again, uh, but who do you say that I am? You're the ones who've been traveling with me. You're the ones who've been living with me for three years. You've seen every single, uh, you know, you've, you've been with me every day, right? We've, we've uh, you know, we've gathered together and we've eaten together. We've ministered together. Who, who do you say that I am? Now, that's a crucial question, isn't it? Because how you answer that question determines your eternal destiny, right? Your eternal destination, I should say. Who is Jesus to you? You can answer that question, he's my Lord and my Savior. Well, that's one place. If you think he's just another prophet or another proclaimer or another good guy with a decent message, that's another story. That's another destination. But it wouldn't be with Jesus. And Scripture is replete with text after text about Christ is, right? Uh, just a couple you can jot down for yourself, and they're very familiar. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is God incarnate in the flesh. wonder who Jesus is. Philippians 2.11, every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. the And many, many more, but Peter course, always the leader, is the first to pipe up with the answer that Jesus just asked. Who do you say that I am? So in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christos in, in uh, Greek. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. To which then Jesus, in verse 17, tells, says to him, blessed are you, Simon because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus makes a statement that has often confused many people and caused lots of conflict between Catholics and Protestants. And a lot of it 
is over the interpretation of this verse, but uh, there are many verses where there are conflict, but this is one, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And that is going to bring us to our first point. And our first point here is that Jesus Christ is the sure foundation Jesus Christ is the sure foundation of the church. Now, Roman Catholics have truly distorted what this verse means by claiming that the church would be built upon Peter, and that's why they justify and believe that Peter uh, was the first pope, which is why they also believe that since Jesus gave Peter this authority, that every pope afterwards has the same authority that Jesus supposedly is giving Peter here. And that, that's why they also believe that since they believe that Jesus endowed this special uh, you know, authority to Peter, that every pope afterwards, when they're speaking what they call ex cathedra, or they're speaking in the authority of the church, that whatever that pope says is the same as if God had said it himself, or it was the same as if it was written in scripture. They believe it's the same. But this understanding is unbiblical, my friends. It's unbiblical because scripture says again and again that Christ is the head of his church. Let me just give you a few here. You can look at these yourself here. Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Let me read this for you. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household, having built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Now this is a building metaphor, and it's meant to point out to us that the first thing they would do before they built any building, any foundation, is they would put the cornerstone in there first, and they would make sure that that was set perfectly level, perfectly square, at the exact corner of the house. And then they would build the other foundations off of that cornerstone. If you don't get the cornerstone right, the whole building would collapse. If you don't get this set here correctly, nothing else works. Now, of course, God used the prophets and the apostles as to build on the foundation, right, that he is laying as the chief cornerstone. But Christ himself is the cornerstone, lest we ever forget. And that's going to become important as we forward here a little bit this morning. Here's another one that you can write down. Colossians 1, 18 and 19. Christ, he, Christ, is also head of the body, the church. In case we had any questions what the body of Christ is. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell now let's go back here uh, to Matthew chapter 16 and look at verse 18 again. And I just want to prep this for you a little bit as we walk through this text because this is important for what follows afterwards. First he says, you are Peter, or thou art Peter, I think the King James says, if you want to, it's a little more poetic. You are Peter. Now the Greek word for Peter here is Petros, Petros. 
Petros means small stone or pebble. He's, he's doing, Jesus is doing a little play on words here. He's saying, Peter, you're, you're the little stone. You're the pebble. And then he says, uh, you are Peter, and upon this rock. And here he uses a different word. And the word for rock here is Petra. Petra. That word means uh, foundation stone or boulder or big rock. So what is Jesus saying here? I'll give you my PR translation here. Peter, you are a little stone, but I will build my church upon myself, the cornerstone, the foundation stone of the church. That's what he's saying. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture as well. Acts 4.11 says, He, Christ, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. None of the apostles are the cornerstones. The foundation stone of the church. They are simply added to the foundation of the church, Christ, through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11, here's another one for you. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now notice again in our text that Jesus did not say, Peter, you will build the church. But what? He says, look at the text. He says, I will build whose church? My church, Jesus says. I will build my church. Not Peter, you will build a church. Jesus says, I will build my church. And in 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter really echoes this, doesn't he? When he says the church is comprised of living stones, living petros, living little stones who confess that Christ indeed is the son of the living God, the Petra, the big stone. So my friends, this is Christ's church. He is the foundation of everything that we do in the church. He's the chief cornerstone through which every other foundation in the church is built upon. He and he alone has divine authority in the church. Nowhere in Scripture do we see Jesus ever abdicating his authority over the church. Never does he say, oh, I'm going to give my authority over here to this guy or to that guy. No, he is the head of the church. Lest we ever forget, this is Christ's church. We are but servants in his church. But that has not stopped others from forming ideas and opinions about the church that don't align with the scripture that's so clearly laid out here. Unfortunately, as has happened throughout church's history, cultural ideas and worldly thinking and ideologies, sin, Satan, even the church members themselves, have added fuel to these misconceptions. Let's talk about a few of these this morning. 
we'll see how many of these you've heard or possibly have believed. Perhaps yourself at one time or another, maybe even still today. So point number two is our misconceptions and misperceptions about the church. So let me give you the first one. The church is a building. The church is a building. Many people believe when we talk about the church, we just mean this physical structure that we're sitting in right now. Now, some of this is our own doing, don't we? It's because we add fuel to this. Well, I'm going to church. I'm headed over to the church. I'm serving at the church. We, we, we make it seem like it's this is where church is. Or my church is that brick building on a physical structure, so it's easy to believe why. It's easy to see how people can get that misperception. Here's number two. The church is just an organization like any other organization. They just have a different focus. So many people see the church like the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club of America or any other club that you may belong to, but they just have a little different focus. So, for example, in the YMCA, instead of their focus on young men or YWCA, women's health, it's, it's focused on religion. Ironically, my friends, the YMCA originally started off as, guess what? A Christian association, Young Men's Christian Association, right? And then it was the Young Women's Christian Association. Yeah, I see all of you over 20 going, yeah, I But you can see how someone might think that they are similar in regards. I mean... They have rules, we have rules. They have elected officers, we have elected officers. They have set times to meet, so do we. They have regular scheduled meetings, so do we. They have membership requirements, so do we. So you can see how if you've never grown up in the church, you're not a part of the church, you might say, well, it just seems like another club to me, except they're talking about religious stuff instead of, you know, whatever. Here's number three. The church is only open on Sundays and Wednesdays. Consequently, the pastor only works one or two days a week. I'm glad you're laughing. So like the pastor, other than the meeting days, you're just simply free to do as you choose. Sounds like a pretty easy life, doesn't it? Here's number four. You become a part of the church when you join it go to a church, and then if we like it, we'll decide if we'll join it or not, and if, and if we like it and it doesn't make any changes we don't like, then we'll stay, and if not, then there's always another church just around the corner. Or here's number five. The church is here to meet my spiritual needs. The church has a responsibility to feed me the way I want to be fed. The church music should be the kind of music that I like to listen to. The pastor should never be too boring. The Sunday school and children's ministry, well, they should be to both my and my kids' satisfaction. The times we meet should work for me and my family, and many, many more. Does these sound familiar at all? How many times have you had people ask you about your church, and these misconceptions have come up somewhere in their questioning? I know from my own personal experience, it has happened quite a bit, and many times from those in my own family. Now, let's see what the Bible has to say about these topics. After all, we all say that Scripture is the metric through which we judge all things. Well, let's see how what the Scriptures say about the church and about these misconceptions. 
let's see how the biblical truth matches the above list of misconceptions about the church. So here's point number three. Let's look at the truth of God's word about the church. Here's misconception number one. The church is the building. Here's the biblical truth. You are the church. You, individually and collectively, are the church. Gather together. You are the church. You're the church wherever you go. Did you know that? You are the church. Now, I praise God that PBC is such a wonderful building to worship in for 91 years. It's a long time. And I praise God for the countless hours the deacons and many, many other faithful servants have served to keep this physical building in such wonderful condition. We are blessed. But, beloved, if a winter storm blew through this area tonight, prognosticating anything here. And it destroyed this building. Guess what? You would still be Portage Bible Church. We would just meet somewhere else. You'd still be the church. And that's important to remember. How can that be? It's because you are the church. If this building were to cease to exist, then we'd just meet somewhere else. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells where? In you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at a couple. Let's look at this passage here. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, and he's not talking about the physical building, Ephesians 2, verse 20, being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God, Paul's greeting to the Romans and the, the church in Rome in Romans 16:5, he says, also greet the church that is in their house. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, greet all the saints that are happen to be meeting in the house. That's the church. The saints that are gathered together, that's the church. It's not whosoever house they're in. That's just where they're meeting together. See, churches gather into buildings, but the buildings themselves are not the church. We are the body of Christ and the means through which Christ proclaims his message and ministers to his children. In a very real sense, we are the arms and the ears and the hands and the feet and the mouth of Christ. And he ministers in and through us to accomplish his will, both in our lives and in the world around us. He's the head. We are the body. You who the Holy Spirit indwells, you are the temple of God. You, wherever you go, as a true believer, my friends, you are the church. You're the church. Here's number two. 
the church is just another organization with a different focus. The biblical truth is the church is not an organization. It's a living and breathing organism. It's true, we have rules, we have elected officers, we have set times to meet, we have regular scheduled meetings, we have membership requirements. But those are just the governing tools of the church. They're not the church itself. The church is the body of Christ as it lives in the world, shining the light of the gospel message every day through our words and our actions. Here's number three. The church is only open on Sundays and Wednesdays. Well, my friends, if you believe that one, you really need to stop by more often. I don't know any church where this is the case, but that's the perception out there anyway. And I, I certainly don't know any pastors that only work two days a week either, but that also is a perception, misperception. Trust me when I tell you there are far more ministry needs than time available in the day. If I could minister 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there would still be more ministry to be done every week. Here's number four. You become a part of the church when you join it. Turn to Acts chapter 2, would you please? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. He's talking about them and being added to what? Being added to the body of Christ. Acts 5, verse 14. Go over a couple pages to your right. And all the more believers in the Lord... Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Here's the biblical truth, my friends. You become part of the church the moment you're saved. That's when you become part of the church. You are part of the universal church of God. Instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, in the flash of light, you become part of the body of Christ. And you're part of that church, the universal church, that comprises all believers in this age, from the birth of the church and Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2, all the way forward. You are the church, and you're part of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14 says this, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of what? One spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Here's misconception number five and the biblical truth. The church is here to meet my spiritual needs. The biblical truth is the church exists to glorify Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's the biblical truth. Not your glory, my friends. Not my glory. His glory. 
That's why we exist. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Let's look at a couple passages here that talk about this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I know I'm putting a lot of scriptures out there for you, but I'm hopefully jotting these down. You can go back and look at these a little more depth later or rewatch it, however you want to do that. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church exists for the glory of God. The main reason that Christ created the church and died for the church was for us to worship, serve, and to bring him glory. That's the main reason we exist at all. The main purpose we have in the church is to edify other believers. What does edify mean? To build up, to get stronger, to grow in our faith, to be taught the word, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we do that corporately through public exhortation. Sometimes we do that privately through individual discipleship, counseling. Go one page over to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he, this is Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. What does all that mean then, Pastor? Are you telling me that the church doesn't exist for my growth or my edification and my growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, I'm not saying that at all. The misconception that's occurred in our consumeristic society today is that we have become to believe that that's the primary purpose of the church is for me. I'm no longer the beneficiary of what it means as we gather together to glorify God in his church. It's now become all about me. What do I like? My friends, we've made the church all about us, and we have seem to have little to no concern about Jesus Christ's glory, and sometimes even what that means to other fellow believers. We search for churches based on whether we like the pastor, or whether we like the style he preaches, or whether the building is old or new, or whether it has a fun play area for the kids. And we determine if we'll stay by how long the service runs, and if they have coffee available, and if they have a bookstore, and if they let out before the noon kickoff. And how often and in which way they mention money, and I could go on and on and on and on. But where is Jesus Christ in any of those decisions? Where is he? This is his church. How is Jesus glorified if we're more concerned about whether our day will be interrupted than worshiping the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings who saved us from all eternity? 
if we're more concerned about what version of the text will be used or if the, the temperature is comfortable for me or if my kids had fun, my friends, this has to stop. In every church, we've lost our focus. We've made it all about us in the church. And I firmly believe that if we don't change that thinking now, the Lord will make sure that it gets changed, albeit in a far more difficult manner. Because all you have to do is pick up a church history book and see what happens when the church loses its way. Or go back to the Old Testament, if you'd like, and see what happens every time Israel lost its way. And God was gracious and loving and compassionate and long-suffering. But he will not be relegated to second or third or fourth place in our lives. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He does not take second place in anything. And just because he's allowed us to drift this far off from what our purpose is as a church doesn't mean that he approves it. We need to get our heads straight here, my friends, and I say that lovingly, myself included, because we are the church. Remember? We're the church. We are the arms and the hands and the feet and the legs and the mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ. He chooses to use us for his glory, not our glory. We've allowed this outside thinking to permeate and saturate our churches to where we think it's all about us. Praise God that he's as long-suffering and compassionate and merciful as he is. But, my friends, if we don't correct our thinking, and we have an opportunity to do that now, then the Lord will correct it for us. Scripture is very clear. I mean, the Lord has a way of waking us up and purging the church of those who are only in it for themselves. Sometimes it's persecution, sometimes it's trials, sometimes it's tribulations. Nothing purifies the church like those kind of things. Look at the persecution that occurred in Russia, or Ukraine, or China. Guess what happened to the churches when they clapped down and lined people up and killed them for their faith? You know what happened in the church? It flourished. You'd say, wait, wait a second. I thought you just said they rounded everybody up and killed them. Well, guess what happens? When you eliminate from the church those who are only in it for themselves, guess who's left? Those who are in it for Christ Jesus. And you can have a lot less people in your church who are on fire for Jesus and accomplish a hundred times more. Look at the early church in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. I could go on and on, right? You look at that early church. It wasn't an easy time. They're sawing people in half. They're separating families. Nero's dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire for his garden. I mean, it's horrific. And guess, they're, they're lining families up and put him in the middle of an arena and, and releasing wild dogs and animals to eat them alive and people are cheering on. It's, it's decadent. It's horrible. And guess what happens in the church? It explodes. Why? Well, because it, it quickly eliminates out of the church any of those who are not in it for Christ. Quickly. And the church explodes. 
every time the world has tried to eradicate the church, it's only grown. Because all these things do is eliminate from the church those who are in it for themselves. And that's all that's left are those who are in it for Christ. The church can drastically shrink in numbers during those times, but it will prevail because of the strength of those who remain. Beloved, sin cannot destroy the church. Satan cannot destroy the church. Even our own members can't destroy the church. They may wound the church, but it will prevail. Neither man nor Satan can destroy Christ's church. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Many have tried, but the church stands today because of the perseverance of the faithful saints. To that end, my friend, every time a church goes through a change of any sort, we as the body of Christ have a decision to make. We're going to opt in or we're going to opt out. The easy decision when the waters get stormy and it seems like the water's seeping over the sides is to opt out. I'm getting out of here. That church no longer provides me or my family with whatever. You fill in the blank. I don't like that change. I'm not happy anymore. They didn't make the decision I thought they should make. I don't agree with them. Whatever is your reason. Would you care to take a guess at how many changes and decisions and course of actions have occurred in this church that I have personally disagreed with in the last 20 years? Would you care to take a guess? I could fill volumes, my friends. And so many of you could, who've been here longer than me, you probably have another couple of volumes I don't even know about. together and also in the community and we do it for his glory not our preferences you see the hard thing to do when the stormy waters crash over the sides is to look around at the faces of your brothers and sisters and say they need me now more than ever they need me and you band together and you cling together and you say we're going to get through this by the grace of God This is putting others' needs ahead of yourself. This is loving one another. The new commandment that Christ gave his disciples in that final statement we looked at a couple weeks ago in the upper room, isn't it? Loving one another. This is what it looks like. The true test of loving one another is when the waters are stormy, not when they're smooth as glass. Easy then, isn't it? Harder. Friends, the church has always navigated stormy waters every time a significant change has occurred. I remember when Pastor Jim was called to another church. And we all thought, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? It's been here 10 years. And despite all the anxiety and worry that occurred when he left, do you realize the church doubled in size in the next 10 years? has always brought us through because this church has always been filled with those who recognize that 
this is his church. And yes, we'll gain some and we'll lose some along the way, but his church will prevail because of the faithful remnant that remain. It has done that for the last 91 years, and it'll probably do it again for the next 90 years. I won't be here for the next 90 years. Most of you will not be here for the next 90 years, but God's church will Beloved, this is the church. You guys say, what is the church? This is the church. You are the church. This is what it means to gather together. And we should start doing that now, my friends. Because we don't know what stormy waters are ahead. This is Christ's church, the one who, the, the church that Christ died for church that he has gifted teachers and preachers and evangelists to equip the saints, the church that will prevail until he calls his church home in the rapture. All right, my friends, we've taken a torch now to all these misconceptions. What will you do to ensure that this body of Christ remains true to the church that Christ speaks about here in our text today? What are you personally? going through that list of misperceptions and misconceptions and you said I didn't want to admit it but man, a couple of those I, were my misconceptions about the church and if that's the case my friends repent of that and commit to loving one another the way that God wants you to do in a way that glorifies God or if you've been tempted to opt out because the waters are stormy my friends repent and back in. Because your brothers and sisters, they need you. It's okay to make a mistake or it's okay to have a misconception about something. God's grace is sufficient for us all. It's not a terrible sin to have a misconception. But it becomes one if we pridefully hang on to it. That's when it becomes a bigger issue. My friends, let us all examine ourselves carefully. Put away any prideful actions that would hinder our testimony as the body of Christ. The easy thing to do is to opt out. The difficult part of living for Christ in the church is banding together and being there for each other through the storm. God is glorified when you demonstrate your love for one another in and through his church. Beloved, you are the church. Be the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for the challenge from your text. Lord, you've been stepping on my toes all week long in this text. And no doubt we've stepped That's what your word does. It challenges us to rethink our hearts and our hearts intent. Father, we know our hearts, even though we can deceive ourselves at times, but ultimately you know our hearts. And so I pray, Father, that as we think about
church is, what it looks like going forward, that we would opt in. Look around at our brothers and sisters and say, they need me. I need to be here for them. I pray, Father, that that would be our heart's desire in this church. Help us, Father, to live for you and to glorify you in your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Let's all stand, shall we?